Hi, everybody. It's Pastor Brian. And today, Pastor Lance and I are off-site with the rest of our staff for a special meeting. So we don't have a new episode of Engaging Culture for you today. But what we do have is we want to share with you an episode of a podcast that is also produced by Bridgeway, and that is the Engaging Parenting Podcast. Pastor Matt and Pastor Cliff are the main hosts of that particular podcast, and they have been sharing all sorts of great insights that will be useful to you if you are a parent. So the episode that we want to show you was one of their earliest episodes, and on it, they welcomed a guest by the name of Kristen Crichton, who is a professor at William Jessup University and is an expert on the teenage mind. So uh, she shares all sorts of great wisdom for you. So really hope that you enjoy this episode that you're going to hear here in just a moment. And also, the Engaging Parenting podcast has been going on for quite a while. So if you like what you hear, look it up wherever you get your podcasts and go ahead and subscribe and give it a listen. And I think you're going to be really glad that you did. It's been now two and a half years that we've been doing the Engaging Culture podcast, and Pastor Lance and I love it, and we're so thankful to you for listening and for being a part of the show with us. We want you to know a couple things. Number one, you can always help us out by going on to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a rating or a review that helps us get the podcast in front of more people. And then also, we're always open to hearing what you want to hear in terms of topics you'd like for us to discuss or guests that you would like us to interview. So if you've got a topic idea or or a guest idea, I would love it if you would just email me directly at bkiley, that's B-K-I-L-E-Y, at bridgeway.church. That's bkiley at bridgeway.church. Send me ideas you've got. Pastor Lance and I will discuss them, and you might see an idea you have or a guest suggestion you have on a future episode of Engaging Culture. Well, that's it for me this time. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Engaging Culture, but for now, I hope that you enjoy this episode, season one, episode two of the Engaging Parenting podcast called Understanding the Teenage Mind. Well, we want to welcome you to our second episode of Engaging Parenting, Bridgeway's podcast on parenting kids and teens. We're here to talk specifically about the glorious and terrifying work of parenting teenagers in our culture and why being spiritually and culturally informed is essential in discussing practical tips on how you can parent confidently and watch your teenagers thrive. My name is Pastor Matt, and I'm here with Pastor Cliff, and we have a guest here that Pastor Cliff's going to introduce. Yeah, we have a guest today. Her name is Kristen Crichton. She's been in youth ministry. She was in youth ministry for 10 years as a youth pastor and now has been um, a therapist for 15 years. And Kristen, you were my professor when I was over at Jessup, and it was awesome, and you're a great professor. We are so excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. So, So awesome. And Kristen, she is an expert on not only teenagers, but also the teenage mind. So today, like we talked about our last podcast, we are going to be talking about the mind of a teenager because their minds are very hard to understand. Kristen's laughing, but you have to understand that we, you know, we are experts within the relativity of (laughs) we want to, Yeah, I can pretend well. (laughs) Yeah, it's, you know, but you are skilled. You do have experience both practically and in your studies and teaching it. So Mm -hmm. we, we do, we are thankful that you're here. And, uh, and yeah, so we're talking about the mind of a teenager and, uh, and part of it's going as it's perceived by those working with youth and, and the parents that are parenting youth. Right. And so that plays in very well. And, uh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, let's just kick it off uh, kind of very broad and then we can get more specific about, you know, what 
a teenager is going through. Um, but Kirsten, why is it so important to understand the mind of a teenager when you're parenting them? I think the biggest problem I see in parents um, with teenagers is they sometimes miss the transition. I mean, sometimes they're assuming they're still thinking like children. Yeah. And sometimes they're looking at their teen who looks an awful like uh, awful lot like an adult, mm-hmm. um, maybe even rationalizes an awful lot like an adult, can sure spar with you intellectually. And so we place expectations that are unrealistic on their functioning, and that leads to conflict. Either we're expecting too little um, or we're expecting too much. And when we can understand their brains and we can understand their limitations and the goals of development, I think that helps us to better parent them in that time. Yeah, that's that's super good. I to- to- totally agree with that. <laughs> Boom. We're done yeah, for today. That's it. And uh, <laughs> man, drop Phew. the mic. That was easy. Um, <laughs> so what's, the, what's the, the biggest difference between the brain development then of like a 10 or 11-year-old and an 18-year-old? And I mean, pick a, a gender, right? Because I know it's different within, you know, the puberty and hormonal changes happening in a female versus a male and even in the brain development. So which one, whichever one you would like to track on? Well, I think the hard thing is that our research shows you really cannot identify a certain age and development with brains because we start at different times. Sometimes there is correlation. I mean, if somebody begins puberty earlier, they usually are going to begin that brain development sooner. Um, but we, our processes are just that. It is a process and it's a long process. It starts around 11 or 12 and it extends to 25. So how old are you, Cliff? 25. <laughs> well, congratulations. His Your brain, brain is fully, fully developed. My brain is fully. As so of that's now. why we started okay. this. Yeah. So Because now I can actually, my brain is fully developed. So. <laughs> you can <laughs> engage. Amen. You, you can speak to us about what it was like way back when. Yeah. Right? Way back when. Yeah. So it is just, it's a process and it's one that's really important to understand. So I don't know. You want me to walk you through the process? Yes, As please. best yes. I can? Okay. I would love that. So we know that the first few years of life period, there's so much development within the brain right? Mm -hmm. Um, Massive amounts. And then it kind of slows. But then right before adolescence, there's a big spurt in growth again. And then when we hit adolescence, a couple of really important processes begin. And one of those processes is what we call a pruning process. So basically, we look at kids and we say, oh gosh, they're sponges. They can learn anything. And they do. They learn it really easily. Um, But at that point of pruning, the things that they have not learned, um, the, the the parts of their brain that they're not using, the brain begins to prune those away. So it literally mm. cuts off some of those connections because it wants to make the connections that are existing stronger mm. and faster, right? Mm. So we call it kind of the use it or lose it time, um, which is kind of scary, right? Because you think about teens who are at that point sometimes singularly focused, maybe on video games, for example, right? And they're not- I've never heard about that. (laughs) They're not expanding their minds and experiences. Um, It's a time when it's really important that we're still exposing them to a lot of different things, right? So that's one of the important things to remember in adolescence is that they're still really primed for new experiences, but their window of opportunity is narrowing. So the pruning is happening. At the same time, um, the, there's there's stuff going on in the front of their brain, the prefrontal cortex, we call it. It begins to start growing, but it's not there yet. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's important. The prefrontal cortex, if you know, if you're not familiar with it, it's common language, right? The PFC. Um, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, we talk about it every day, but we use it as adults, at least. We use it every day. I call it, it's the part of your brain that does the foresight, insight, hindsight kind of stuff. It's mm-hmm. the part of your brain that organizes, it interprets, and it's really 
important, uh, it's an important tool that we have for being able to just kind of um, move throughout life, interpret information, interact with that, know what to do with it. Um, it also has to do with development of kind of character and personality. So that's still forming. Mm-hmm. And and even though it's there, the other problem is it's not well connected. And that's the part. The, the second piece that's happening is that we have the brains go through a process called myelination or myelination. I don't remember how to pronounce that. But um, it's a time when the circuitry of the brain is being reinforced. And so it's helping the brain to essentially work faster and harder. Mm -hmm. Your brain in that time um, is like, I don't know, 3,000 times more effective once the myelination process is over. Is, is that when the synapses are starting mm-hmm. to form more with what's going on in the Look frontal at you. cortex? Yeah. I know just about Ow. enough to get myself in trouble. Wow. Uh, yeah. but I'm only 25 mm-hmm. rumor, so my brain didn't just developed. <laughs> you just what formed a synapses right now, though, wow. with what you're learning. Because that still happens when you're, you're past really 25, right? trying to impress the audience, aren't you? With no, your no, I just— great Knowledge of neuroscience. Yeah, Impressed great job. Me, so. so here's the deal. That process starts at the back of the brain and it moves forward. So mm. the connections to the prefrontal cortex are not there. It is essential that parents understand this very fact because as adults, we are using our prefrontal cortex all the time to make decisions and to know how to interpret things and to interact. Well, teenagers don't have access to that. So what are they using? Well, we found that they are using their amygdala. It's a great little word, amygdala, right? I um, like that word. <clears throat> yeah, it's kind of fun. Um, only the amygdala is not really a great friend uh, when you're looking for advice because your amygdala is the part of your brain that's really highly emotionally reactive. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of the part of your brain that deals with uh, detecting fear and preparing for a kind of emergency response. And if you think about it, this is why everything feels like an emergency to a teenager, uh-huh. right? Yeah, because they are thinking with a part of their brain that says, it's a crisis right now. I need yeah. it right. Because the frontal cortex isn't responding and going, Not well, let's balance this. Let's, at all. Yeah. yeah. So is good. But that's why there's disconnect between a parent and a teenager because the parent yeah. can fully understand and the teenager can't. Yes. So teens just don't have the capacity. And that's what parents have to get is that teens are relying on that emotional part of their brain when reading others' emotions, and they often then interpret emotions incorrectly. In fact, studies have proven that. You show a teen a picture of somebody like that's sad. Clearly, 100% of adults or maybe 90% of adults would say, that's a sad face. Teens don't interpret that face the same way. It's ambiguous. It, they they all have different responses. Huh. So they haven't learned yet how to process what they're seeing in terms of emotional response. So you've ever had a teen that said, you're mad at me. Why are you so mad at me? Right? And you're like, I'm not mad. You're giving me the face. What what, what are you talking about? Right? <laughs> yeah. It's a misinterpretation, but they are locked into it. That's yeah. the hard part is they believe this is a, a correct interpretation. So they tend then— Because they're using that emotion center, they're reacting emotionally, and so they're going to be more impulsive. So that's the other piece that we tend to see is that increased impulsivity in their adolescence, right? Because that's what's driving them. Can I I interject something? of course. And and it's more of a question that comes off of it. So with that kind of like working from the – how do you say it again? Amygdala. 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 I wanted to say amygdala, and that's not right. Uh, That – that happens when they're interpreting like face and and all that kind of stuff. So where does then like things like texting and social mm-hmm. media because now it's words that yeah. are coming in and you see that same impulsivity and reaction. Is it 
does it matter or is it just saying all interpretive? It's all interpretive. Okay, so, but I'm saying it's also faces. It's also emotions. It's any information that's coming in because they are not processing in the same way that we would. Um, and so. So it, misinterpretation all across the board exactly. though, happens. They okay. are that's, not that's able what to I make to. logical and appropriate decisions that adults would think they should be able to make. And here's the deal. If you sit down with a teenager and you give them a scenario and say, okay, so here's a, you know, you're at your friend's house and, and they come and they offer you, a, you know, my parents aren't home and would you like vaping. a beer, whatever, uh, vaping, whatever it is. And you, and you sit down with them, not in the moment and ask them, what would you do? What could you do? They can walk through and and tend to be able to rationalize it in the same way that an adult would do. But in the moment when they are actually at the friend's house and the friend is pulling out the vape pen, that's the time when they are not able to make those good decisions because they are reacting from that emotion center. And yeah. you, and you that's, add to that that whole. I think you guys had talked about uh, the imaginary audience, right? And uh-huh. and those and the personal fable piece. Yeah. Um, they imagine so much that everybody's watching them and what they're uh-huh. doing makes a difference. And so they're they're factoring those things in more significantly in that moment about how am I appearing to others? My identity mm-hmm. in whether I respond or don't respond. Yeah. Right. That's Yeah, that's super interesting. So with this idea, how as a parent do you communicate to a teenager to help them process during a crisis moment like you're talking about? Or is it even possible? To help them process. So this is where it's so helpful um, for parents to do kind of dress rehearsals with kids. Like I really encourage it because the research has found this, that difference between the hot cognition and the cold cognition. The hot cognition is in the moment. The cold is kind of when I can sit back and be reflective. So we want to as much as possible sit down and kind of talk through some of these scenarios with kids and what would you do? And then it just becomes kind of more a routine. Oh, I know what to do now. It's really I, good. Yeah. yeah. And and so I, I encourage parents even to process through thinking about, okay, your friends will be watching. You're going to be worried about that. How, you know, how can I help you as a parent to get out of this situation? Um, I, I encourage parents to, you know, hey, create a code word on your phone with your kids. So if they text you and and they say uh, spider, that you have agreed with them that, you know, you're going to wait five minutes and then you're going to call them and tell them there's a family emergency and they have to come home right now. And they're going to argue with you on the phone and say, what, mom, I don't want to. And they're going to pull that whole thing off and pretend as though they don't want to leave, but it's your fault that they have to, right? Yeah, and cool. so you are helping them escape from a situation and helping them save face, right? Yeah. Code word is spider. So spider <laughs> I want you guys all to note that that are listening. That's the best one. I hate spiders, but still. Yeah. It's, uh, that's great. No. Great word. And that makes sense why when you see often within schools mm-hmm. and rallies and stuff, people that are doing motivational speaking or coaching mm-hmm. and stuff like that, they often, I, I've seen it with bullying, that they'll have students run through the scenarios in front of yep. a bunch of peers and they'll try to show them what's going on yeah. and kind of how to respond. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't make that connection until – yeah. You were just sharing that. And I, right I had multiple rallies when I was in high school with that type of thing. I went to a Christian high school, and I had a guy come up and give us scenarios of different religions. And that helped me kind of know what to say to people of different other religions. Yeah, yeah. helpful. Yeah, that's super helpful. The other thing about making those decisions for the teenager in the moment is that because they're making decisions from the emotion center of their brain, they don't have access to the why. So when they make a bad decision and the parents want to sit down and have that conversation and they say, Cliff, why did you do this? It's almost like you're talking to the two-year-old. Why did you take the cookie? 
I don't know. Uh, it, it was there, right? I, I don't know. Mm. They can't answer the why. What they can do is they can, they can talk through the what. Hey, can you tell me about your process, your thinking process? What was your process here? And as they talk through the process, you'll kind of hear the why, but they can't identify it because they just reacted. They didn't process. Yeah. Does that yeah. make sense? Yep. So avoid the why and avoid complex questions. Because again, if they're thinking emotionally, the complexity is going to set off some alarms for them and they will go into that fight or flight mode. And so simple questions. Even though you're like, well, these kids are smart and they're rational. And yes, they are. But in the moment, they don't have that capacity to make the connection. Yeah. And that's well, the important I'm, piece I'm to remember. I'm ruined because I don't know how to ask a simple question. That's yeah. my problem. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very important to remember in the moment, they just don't, they don't fully process the way that we expect them to. So if we ask these complex questions, then it's just, yeah. it doesn't work. So. Yeah. And this is, this is interesting just as we're talking about it, because like one of the things we're going to be talking about in another segment is, have you ever read, Dr. Epstein did a book on the culture of adolescence? And his whole, he's more sociologist, mm. but his whole thing was that a lot of students, um, they're growing into adulthood. And like you said, they're actually making this transition mm -hmm. into adulthood. Yeah. And and yet we tend to infantilize or, or keep them as children when right. they're actually functioning. And so what I like about what you're saying is, because I mean, he kind of says we need to start treating them more like adults earlier, but, but what's part of the reality of it is the, the brain science and yeah. the psychology of it, which is they still need guidance. Mm -hmm. It just is to me really interesting to mm -hmm. see that connection because it's actually going to take more work for parents. But that's some of the hard part is that parents tend to already be overloaded in this in the time period when their students are making that transition. Yeah. And so then they struggle with, okay, I have to make a lot of changes mm -hmm. because they're making a lot of changes, but I need to walk them through this the stage so that they can function as an adult and you're helping them the brain development. Is that you correct? Are, yeah. And that's yeah. exactly, I was just going to say that um, one of the things that's really important to remember is the neuroplasticity of the brain at that time, which means it's, it's very primed for growth, right? And it can learn new things. And so for parents to sit down and to talk with their kids and, and walk through scenarios is helping their, their brain to grow. It's, mm -hmm. it's giving them opportunities for that. Um, and you also, as a parent want to be encouraging into, of course, that's one of the kids' goals, right? I want independence in yeah. this time. They're fighting for it. So give that to them, but give it to them while you sit and talk with them about what would you do with this? How can you plan for this? And putting that responsibility on them while you're there to be the safety net and they can talk through and walk through. And then when they're in the moment, they do the right thing. Yeah. Right? You're setting them up for success in that way. Yeah. Um, some other cool things I wanted yeah. to be able to share. Um, so Dan Siegel, Daniel Siegel, is one of the the brain experts, attachment experts. He's great. You can you know Google him, go on YouTube, parents, listen to more of him. He's a, a great resource on this if you want to know more. But he identified that there's some key features of the adolescent brain and, and the development in this time. And he uses the word essence to kind of describe that. And um, the ES stands for emotional spark. So what's happening, uh, we've just talked about, right? All that emotional spark, all the emotions that are just bathing their brain at that time. Um, but what I love is that, so he has ES, emotional spark, SE, social engagement, N is for novelty, and CE is for creative exploration. So the thing I want to really highlight is that social engagement component, because a lot of parents struggle so much with their teens um, in regards to their teens' desire to be with their peers, right? Mm -hmm. This is, is a constant struggle. But what Siegel really makes clear is that 
hey, these kids' brains have been primed toward, at this point of adolescence, toward leaving. Biblical, right? Leave and cleave. Yeah. It, it is what they are supposed to do. So all your kids need to get married. No, no, <laughs> well, I, I know what you're let's, saying. Let's get them out. Let's <laughs> launch them successfully first. So their brains are geared toward that. So up until this point, your job as a parent is to provide a platform for that. And that platform is a healthy attachment, right? And 65% of kids have healthy attachments with their parents. And he identifies there's there's four things a kid needs to feel um, securely attached. They need to feel seen. Um, meaning you see more than my behavior. You see kind of my inner workings. Mm. Uh, you need to feel safe, protected from harm, um, and that the parent is is not a source yes. of terror. They need to feel soothed. So when I feel overwhelmed, I have a place to go with that. Yep. And then secure. So I feel safe with this person. So the parent has been the source of that up until this time. Yep. Now these kids are looking out. They're looking at launching. Well, that's a terrifying possibility. I'm leaving the source of safety and attachment. In order for them to feel courage to go out there and launch, they have to establish new attachments, right? Mm -hmm. And you look at, I mean, he talks about in the wild, when when animals leave the safety of the parent, they go and hang out with other adolescent animals, and that's how they're safe out there in the wild, right? Exactly. And if you don't have a pack, you don't survive. So the teen's goal now is I need to find my pack. And it's a safety need for them. So I need to find someone who can meet that attachment need. So you hear kids saying, you know, my friends understand me. They understand me. No (laughs) one else understands me. They feel seen. There's the S, right? Uh, They say things like, my friends are there for me, right? So that's the safe. Uh, I need to talk to my friend. I have to talk to them right now. Give me my phone back. Because that's the soothing, that they're getting soothing from that relationship because that's how they feel secure. So these kids are primed towards relationship. They're primed to go out there, move away from home and toward the safety of their cohort. So if you as a parent can empathize with that, that literally to them, it feels like if I don't go to this party where I can, you know, secure my friendships, I will not have any friends and I will die. They yeah. will, they, it, and you it, are ruining my life. Yes, but it feels that urgent feels to them, that and yeah. it's real. So if you can say, "Wow, you know that that's so big for you, and it feels really frightening, and and, imp- and it's important to you to be able to do this thing," empathy doesn't mean you give in and say, "Sure, yeah, go to that party where I know there's going to be all kinds of you know horrible behaviors." Mm-hmm. But it does mean that you talk to your kid about what they do with those feelings and where else they could go to get those attachment needs met. You know, helping say, "Well, what about this friend? I know." they're probably not going to that party. Can can I take the two of you to go do something else? Because I'm mm. offering connection and valuing that need, right? Yeah. So, Which is why often yeah. when people have a, a family, I, I know for me growing up, it was the, the Tackets. If they ever listen to this, that's a shout out to you. But <laughs> that they were the ones that they would often invite us over. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, like every family, I think in every group of friends, there's always a couple homes that like, Everyone always ended Everyone up at that house. Out. Yeah, of and, it's, and it's almost like that environment was set up mm-hmm. by those by those parents. It doesn't mean other families didn't. It just that you would tend to be a lean kind it, of it than that. Exactly. Yeah. So back to uh, the Siegel thing, that the end for novelty. Here's another one that, you know, we know kids, teens, risk takers, right? It's the thing that we see that's very prevalent in the adolescent years. Uh, there's that risk is frightening to parents. They see their kids going and doing dumb things, right? Hide pods. Mm, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I went right to the most extreme. <laughs> to, well, it's totally. not the most extreme. But, yeah. Well, but, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but that is another part of the drive in them toward leaving home because they have to be primed to uh, desire the unfamiliar, the uncomfortable, the uncertain, 
right, in order to be okay going out into the world and establishing themselves. And so we want them to have a desire for new things. We want them to have a desire for risk. Uh, We just, they don't have the ability to temper that, right, because that prefrontal cortex isn't engaged. Um, And so we can can value that and say, well, it's so great that you have courage to go and try new things. And I understand that God put you that in you for a reason. Uh, and here's the nice little boundaries I'm going to set around that because you aren't setting them for yourself, right? So, but, but you're having a battle with that even because mm-hmm. the culture is trying to leverage their novelty seeking mm-hmm. for yeah. purchasing power, for yeah, for you know experiential encounter that then would and so that's where again active parenting. <laughs> Uh-huh. is extremely and, important. Yeah, and, that's, that's what some of this is is leading towards, which we're really thankful for all the input that you're giving. Yeah, because what I'm what I'm even seeing in all of this too is there's um, cultures telling them to do whatever they want, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever feels good for you, you should do. You do um, you. Yeah, you do you. You do you. It's the phrase that I say all the time, and that's such a terrible <laughs> phrase. Yeah, you do. I you. judge you for it every time. But. Yeah. Okay, that's good. <laughs> um, but you know, culture saying, hey, whatever makes you feel good. But from what I'm hearing you say, Kirsten, and correct me if I'm wrong, but not all the time should we trust our feelings, especially teenagers should not always trust their feelings. Now they're going to because they don't understand how to not, right? Yeah, but this is so important, Cliff. If we teach them about their brains, they will understand this. They're smart enough to get this information. If if we tell them, here's the deal, you're going to tend to respond emotionally first you're going to be led by that, but it's not always the best tool to use. And so, hey, maybe you can instill for yourself a rule, like a 24-hour rule, you know, before I do anything. Like maybe it's smoke. Maybe it's sleep with your boyfriend, whatever it is. I'm going to give this 24 hours, and I'm going to make sure that it's a decision that I'm making with all the parts of my brain engaged. Yeah, right? not just yeah. in the moment. And some battles yeah. are harder, like because like even the example of somebody sleeping with a boyfriend or girlfriend, mm-hmm. the hormones then add a whole nother layer. They do within the into that. Oh yeah. But um, but you're right. Like I have an 11 and a half year old um boy, and uh, even something simple like we've been trying to get him to use some of the Stridex pads on his mm-hmm. face, and there was like just like a resistance, and I don't understand and. And one time I just spent three minutes to explain how the pores work. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. And then he like went and did it. Right. And it just took that extra little bit of time to try to walk through a a little piece. I don't know if that's a great example. No, I think it is because you're honoring his need for information and for decision making. Like he is presented with all the facts and then he can make the important decision for himself. So it's empowering him. Versus saying, just go do it because I'm the parent. Exactly. And that's the transition we need to put in place. We need to honor that their brains are smart enough to take in information and to to process that. It's just we want to sit and help them do that when they're not engaged, right? So we want to help lead them to those better decisions and we want to honor them and those desires for independence for relationship i mean for even you know trying new things because those are all good things for them um it's just we need they still need us they absolutely need us yeah yeah i have uh, another question is it okay if i ask that go for it uh is uh within the social engagement isn't it also helpful for in that period when they're starting to kind of do the pack mentality mm-hmm. and they're just associating with other youth and youth culture, isn't it 
helpful in that period to also have them making attachment to other healthy adults Absolutely. In their lives. Yeah. yeah. This is key. When I know I teach a marriage and family class, and when I talk about parenting, I tell parents, hey, you need to, in their childhood, uh, help them build connections with at least five significant adults. Um, because when they turn away from you, you want people for them to turn toward who can be models to them, who aren't my parents, um, and have those people engaged with them, involved, showing up at events, so the kids themselves feel supported. Like these people are for me. They're part of my the outside of my pack, right? Uh-huh. And, and this is where uh, youth ministry and youth pastors and youth leaders come in. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Shameless plug to youth ministry right there. Well, that was why as we're all talking and you guys, of course, can't see this, we're all smiling because we're all looking at each other going like, yes. Yes. Because we've all been youth pastors here. So. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah, that's that's the value. I mean, I know my parents, as far as I was concerned when I was probably 14, were, you know, idiots. Yeah, But my, exactly. my youth staff were the coolest cats ever, right? Like yep. I, anything they said was golden to me, mm-hmm. right? And it's why sometimes, and a lot of parents can resonate with this, you will tell your son or daughter 25 times something, mm-hmm. and then they won't listen to you, and then they'll talk to a volunteer mm-hmm. or a, a youth worker or youth leader and they'll come back and be like, hey, I'm going to do this. And the parent's like, that's what I've been saying. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and so yep. it happens. Um, one other piece uh, is is like, is it is it also helpful, Kristen, for us to look at the fact that, you know, some of this we're talking about a group understanding mm-hmm. of um, the psychology and the and the brain function of, of teens, but that there's still the, the aspect of each student is an individual. And so yes. they're going to be a little bit different with each. And so you approach everyone a little bit differently can you just unpack that? We're almost out of time, but I know. That yeah. It- well, I think that the parent needs to not anticipate that their child is going to be the same level of functioning as, you know, the kid that they grew up with in class. Just because academically they may be at the same place, even physically they may look the same. Their brain functioning and development may be different. Their processes may be different. So that's why sitting down and talking to your kid about their processes, tell me about how you made that decision, informs you about a little bit more about where they're at. That's real good. Um, and their confidence around those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and parent involvement then is is critical, right? You, sitting down and just valuing, they want to be heard. Yeah. They, they want that so desperately. They want to know that you think that they're smart, that you respect what they have to say, that their thoughts are important. Mm-hmm. And I mean, who doesn't want that? But they now that they've discovered these thoughts, <laughs> they yeah. want to shout them out to, the, exactly. to everyone. They yeah. want to be heard. That's Yeah, that's, that's really good. Um, and it's affirming because a, a lot of times, you know, Youth pastors say that to parents or even to teenagers, and sometimes they're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," but it's it's good to hear. But um, in the last minute, yeah. what what is one thing that you haven't mentioned yet that you really feel like parents need to hear sleep. about the sleep? sleep. Okay. Kids need they need more <laughs> sleep because of all the development in their brains. They need more sleep, and the problem their uh, their rhythms are thrown off at this time. So that even though they need more sleep, they're not primed for it until later at night. Um, and so we have to figure out ways that we can protect that sleep time for them while still allowing the, the, the truth is they cannot wind down. They cannot fall asleep until later. So what can we do to give them that extra sleep that their brains need, right, to support the growth that's, that's going on inside their minds? Well, naps. we're we're out of time. Yes, more naps. But naps. Uh, we just want to say thank you for being here, Kristen. Yeah, and uh, we hope to so actually much. have you back again because okay. you did such an excellent job. Seriously. And thanks for following and listening to us here on the Engaging Parenting Podcast. And we hope to see you again soon. Thank you for listening to the Engaging Parenting Podcast, hosted by Pastor Matt Bach and Pastor Cliff Woodward, presented by Bridgeway Christian Church. 
For more information about Bridgeway and other content, visit bridgeway.church.